So we're turning to Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 2. We're we'll reading verses 1 through 11 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter it is mad, and of pleasure what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful to be gathered here again this morning. God, we thank you that we do not come here in vain. We thank you, God, that what we do here matters. And it matters a great deal because we intend to come before the throne of grace to worship you, to fellowship under you, to pray, and to hear from you. So God, we pray, despite the words that come out of my mouth, despite the words that I have written, God, that you would speak your word this morning. A word that is meaningful, a word that is significant, a word that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, will change us, and mold us, and fashion us to be more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author, Karen Swallow Pryor, once wrote, Temperance is an ordinary, humble virtue to be practiced on a regular rather than on an exceptional basis. It is a virtue for all times, but it's all the more necessary when times are good. It is also unlike the other virtues, and centering not on actions, but on desires. 
Since we desire what is pleasurable, temperance is a virtue that inclines us to desire and enjoy pleasures well. It helps us to desire pleasures in a reasonable manner. So temperance is a sort of self-control, a discipline, an inner disposition without which you cannot enjoy the pleasures of the world in a right manner, in a good way. As opposed to in an intemperate manner. An intemperate person is a person who gives himself to the pleasures of the world without self-control, without any kind of discipline. Whatever it is I want, I get it. Right, what happens when a man who has incalculable wealth and limitless resources gives himself to, in an intemperate manner to the, the, to the desires of the world? For most of us, we might destroy ourselves through such a pursuit. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is that kind of person. Man with all the resources, with all the wealth, everything at his disposal, and he gives himself in an intemperate manner to pursue the finest things in life. And he does so for a specific purpose. He does this with his wisdom intact. And so the first question he asks, the first point for this morning is, what should man do? What should man give himself to doing in the few days of his life? It is a really good question. Again, he begins, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, speaking to his own self. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter that is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So as we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, we see this man's task, his mission, his quest to try to understand what is life, what is the purpose of life, what is the meaning. What should one person do with his life in the few days of his life? And we saw first that he gives himself to intellectual pursuits. He tries to understand what is the meaning of life by giving his heart, his mind to understanding what is wisdom and what is madness and what is folly. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then in verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. When he says the word heart, he doesn't just mean sort of the, the internal organ of the body, but he's talking about the seat of one's emotions, the, the inclinations of one's life, the affections. He essentially is saying that he is giving himself entirely to trying to understand what is life all about. Yeah, first thought out to this quest intellectually. Let me think deeply about these things. And he came to the conclusion there's all vanity. A striving after wind. It was elusive. So now he comes to a different kind of pursuit. Let's pursue, or rather, let's the same pursuit, but pursued in a different manner. We pursued it intellectually, but now let's pursue this experientially. Let's test this theory out. Let me give my heart what it desires. 
So he gives himself to pursuit of pleasure. Now, pleasure isn't always what is forbidden. Pleasure isn't always a bad thing. There are a lot of things that we can certainly enjoy in life, the delights of life, the good things of life that are pleasurable. And even God himself is a God of pleasure. God pursues his own pleasure. Psalm 16, 11, it tells us about the Lord. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even in the right hand of the Lord there are pleasures, eternal pleasures. 1 Corinthians 29, 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. Not only is God a God who has many eternal pleasures at his right hand, but he is also a God who pursues his own pleasure. And particularly in this passage, he desires pleasure in uprightness. So the teacher of Ecclesiastes decides to test his heart. Let me give myself to pursuing pleasure. Let me try some wine, perhaps. Indulge in some drinking while keeping my wisdom intact as well. Meaning he's pursuing this with a specific purpose. Does this give meaning to my life? Is this what it's all about? So he's begun his test. And he does more than just give himself to wine. He gives himself to other endeavors as well. We see this in the passages in verses 4. So what, had, what does he desire to do? He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So here is a man who gives himself to pleasure, not just pursuing the good kinds of pleasure, but also the bad kind of pleasure as well. Nothing was withheld from his heart. And he even found pleasure in all his toil and everything that his hands produced, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's good to enjoy the work of one's hands. But only that, that only goes so far. At the end of the day, he concludes that it's all vanity. Some of you are familiar with the story of the fictional story of the great Gatsby. Gatsby, who was in love with the woman, went off to war, came back. She was then, by that time, married to another man. And so he devoted his life, his life's ambition was to accrue all this wealth, money, status, put on these lavishes, lavish parties at his mansion in order to sort of deserve the woman of his dreams, in order to get the love of his life who sort of was in a sort of different social class, who was belonged to a different world, in a sense. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he dies. 
Now, to him, the reality of being forever with this woman was an elusive reality. Something he always strived after, was trying to grasp, but he never could. That's sort of the picture that the teacher is painting for us. He's pursuing this reality that is elusive, is escaping him, this reality that perhaps that might be satisfaction and contentment and this transcendent meaning in this world. And no matter how hard he tries to grasp that reality, it keeps escaping. It's elusive. He's done all these things. He made, he built, he gathered, he bought. And at the end of the day, he comes to the conclusion, the tragic conclusion, that it is all vanity. And his conclusion is actually much worse than you might think. We think about everything that he's done everything he's put together, all of his great works. In addition to houses, he made gardens, he made parks, fruit-bearing trees. He may even made a pool to water his forest. And he had men and women to tend to everything that he had built and made with his own hands. And reading everything that he had built and put together and created with his own hands, I couldn't help but think about the book of Genesis and see some striking similarities to the creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, which is sort of a retelling of Genesis chapter 1, it's all the same account. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here's a teacher indulging in the desires of his heart, withholding nothing. And with all that he had, he sort of built this Eden on earth, this paradise. That certainly wasn't just for his own enjoyment, but certainly I would think it was enjoyment for all of his people as well. Planted this garden on earth, had men and women to tend to his garden. Some parallels there to the creation account. And, but when God created everything in the heavens and the earth, when he created this paradise on earth, when he created this Eden and created man and put man in the garden to tend to his garden, when God takes a step back and he looks at everything that he had built and made with his own hands, what does he say? Behold, it was very good. The teacher, on the other hand, built this sort of paradise on earth, 
reduce all of these things. He takes a step back. He says that he considers. The word that essentially is, gives the idea of turning. He takes all that he's built. He turns towards it. He looks at it, considers, thinks about it. Everything that he's put together. But what he doesn't say is, is this all very good? Instead, instead he says, this is all vanity. He's striving after the wind. All meaningless. What's the difference? What is the difference? Both essentially making a lot of the same things, but God's response was, it was very good. The teachers, it was all vanity. Now good, by the way, good doesn't just mean like how we normally use the word good, like, hey, good job. But word, the word good in the Bible is actually much more than that. When we think of creation account, it says that God created everything that was very good. That means something. When God takes a look at Adam and determines that he is lonely and he says it is not good for man to be alone, that means something. When it tells us of the promises of God that they are good promises, it means something. When God intends to bring his people to a land that is good, flowing with milk and honey, that means something. And so when God says that this was very good, and we think about God as well being good, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, what does it say? That God made all of his goodness pass before Moses. The word good in the Bible is something that has this intrinsic value, this prize, something that is incomparable to anything that we might find in this world. And good also has a moral quality to it. And when the teacher says that, he, when he looks at everything that he has done, and he says that it was all vanity, in a way he's kind of saying, this isn't good. So what are the differences? And we can talk a long time about the differences between God and, the, and this teacher and everything that they had put together and built with their own hands. But in order for us to remain anchored to our text this morning, the answer to our question is that God did not make everything because he was trying to satisfy something in himself. The teacher, on the other hand, was trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. I'm trying to find something that will fill the gaping hole in my heart. And so I'm going to give myself to pursuing the finest things in life to see if that will satisfy, to see if that will give my life meaning. And he comes to the conclusion that nothing does. God, on the other hand, had always been satisfied in himself. So everything that God made from the very beginning did not come from a God who was dissatisfied in any shape, way, or form, but it came from a God who was full of delight and satisfaction. Romans 11.35 tells us, or asks, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? The answer is nobody can give a gift to God, give a gift to God because God is rich. Because God owns everything. Psalm 16, 11, read this passage earlier. You make known to be the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the very presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. From the very beginning, from eternity past, God has always been a God of complete satisfaction. And he is the one who invites us to come into his presence and enjoy the pleasure that there is in knowing God through faith in Christ. Psalm 36, 8 speaks of those who pursue the Lord Jesus, who pursue the Lord God. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. God is ultimately the one who satisfies. Everybody wants to be happy in some way, shape, or form. Everybody is after some kind of pleasure. No one likes displeasure, at least not for very long. Even those who seek silence and solitude do so with some sort of pleasure in mind. The problem that is exposed through the teacher's experiment in his pursuit of pleasure is the paradox of hedonism. Paradox, right? The holding two contradictory conclusions together. The paradox of hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, is that you're always seeking pleasure, always seeking, always hungry, always thirsting, and always eating, and always drinking, and always pursuing, but never ever coming to a position where you are completely satisfied. In outer space, Right, somebody familiar that there are black holes in outer space, these giant stars that explode and then they create these black holes, sort of these vacuums in outer space that just suck up everything that is around them. This incredible gravitational pull that not even light escapes the gravitational pull of a black hole. It just keeps consuming, consuming, consuming. Nobody knows what it exactly is in a black hole. The human heart is like a black hole that we find in outer space consuming everything. And in its consumption, the hole only gets bigger. And what we need is sort of this colossal, this supernatural cork to plug up the gaping hole of our hearts. The tragedy is that that kind of satisfaction is nowhere to be found in the world. So the teacher considers all that he had done. It's almost as if he's at the end of his life. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he's taking a step back and considering everything that he gave himself to, everything that he worked so hard to build. The British missionary C.T. Studd it's a great name, by the way, Stud. This missionary once said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done in Christ will last. This teacher is looking to live his life apart from God to see if it brought any meaning, anything of substance, anything permanent. And he came to the conclusion, no matter what I've done with my life, no matter what I've built, no matter how good it was for me or for others, ultimately, this is not going to last. And therefore, it's meaningless. It accomplishes nothing, it gains nothing. 
Everyone seeks happiness in some way, shape, or form. It is not a bad thing to be in the pursuit of happiness. But the problem that we have is the foundation. So then this gets to another question. So if we are to pursue pleasure, if we can pursue pleasure, especially if we can pursue those things that are good in life that even the Lord considers good, how should man pursue pleasure? How should we pursue those things? The first answer to that question is with satisfaction. We certainly can and should pursue those things that are worthy of our pursuit. Even though we, tend to, we have a tendency to pursue those things that are not good, those things that are disobedient unto God, those things that God finds displeasurable, and the things that we also should find displeasurable in sin, in wickedness, in hate. But if we are going to pursue those things that are good, those things that are honorable, whether it's enjoyment in work, whether it's enjoyment in our family, whether it's in fellowship, or even in a good meal, how should those things be pursued? And they should be pursued with a heart that is satisfied. Because without satisfaction, we always will always have the tendency to take even the good things of this life and turn them into idols. We can have a tendency to pursue those good things in a manner that is intemperate, without self-control and without discipline. Any good thing that is to be enjoyed, that is worthy of our pursuit, can become a hindrance or a stumbling block in our lives if we are not first satisfied in Christ. And we cannot pursue pleasure in the right way until we are first satisfied in Christ. So we must continue to pursue Christ. Now, if we are continuing to pursue satisfaction in Christ, doesn't that then say that Christ is unsatisfying? Oh, by no means. The problem is that we tend to gravitate to the things that are less satisfying. It does not mean that Christ is not satisfying. Rather, the problem is with our own hearts, that we, get to, we tend to gravitate to the things that are inferior pleasures. And so it, it, it takes a constant discipline to continue to turn ourselves to Christ, to continue to turn to Christ as our joy, as our delight, as our satisfaction. How exactly do we do this? How exactly do we pursue satisfaction in Christ on a daily basis, season by season, moment by moment? One way to do that is to consider your salvation. In Psalm 51, the psalmist, after, being, after having been confronted by his sin, he prays to the Lord in Psalm 51, verse 11. He says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Joy and satisfaction in Christ comes from remembering the cross of Jesus Christ, remembering what you've been saved from and what you've been saved unto, remembering that you and I were once under the wrath of God because of our sins and offenses against God. But through our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus who came into the world to die on the cross for the sins of his people, through faith in him, we instead receive forgiveness of sins. 
We receive reconciliation with God. We receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. We receive the eternal blessings of God. We receive the Holy Spirit of God. We receive eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all those things, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a joyless Christian. Certainly we can have our moments where our joy is lacking, but ultimately there's no such thing as a joyless Christian because a joy-filled Christian is so because he's the richest person in the entire planet because they have all those eternal blessings that they receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is great joy in our salvation. Sometimes we have a tendency to treat the gospel as something that has happened in the past, that we were saved in the past. But that's not exactly true. No, the person who intends to have a joy-filled life as a Christian is the person who is always living in the present reality of the cross. That person not only says Christ has saved me, but Christ is saving me today. To live today in the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And in that way, you can restore the joy of your salvation. How else can we pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ? Through his word. What is the Bible but a testament to God's abounding grace towards sinners? What is the Bible but the story of God's enduring faithfulness towards his people? What is the Bible but God's written promises to us as his beloved children? In the scriptures, we read of God's good and gracious promises to his beloved children. We are reminded that despite our sins, God continues to be good to us that he continues to be faithful, that he continues to intend to restore us to himself, continues to remind us that we serve a patient God who is always with us. That even when we fail, that even when we sin, the scriptures remind us that Jesus Christ died for the sin that you committed. and that he is your advocate, and that he is your holy priest who intercedes for you before the throne of grace. There's a lot of joy to be had in the scriptures. Another way to pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ is through the fellowship of the saints, coming together with God's people, whether it's in a Bible study, whether it's in a community group, whether it's here on Sunday mornings, is to be in constant fellowship with God's people. Because when we are, we are reminded of the God who is for us. We are reminded through the testimonies of others of how good God is and how he provides. When we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we not just see another person before us, but we see somebody who's been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That this is a brother and sister, that we are gathering together with family members. So if you find yourself liking joy in this particular, these particular days or in this season, then I would just simply ask, have you been neglectful of his word? Have you been neglectful 
the fellowship of the saints? Have you considered your own salvation to the blood of Jesus Christ? See, the teacher's problem, which is the same problem as the secularist, the secular person who does not live in the fear of God or have a relationship with God, is seen in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. This is the reason why the teacher and anybody else apart from God cannot find truly those things that are fulfilling in life. Jeremiah 2.12 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. One evil is an evil of decision. The decision to turn away from God. And the other great evil is one of affection. Pursuing the things of the world that ultimately do not satisfy. Like cisterns that cannot hold water because it's broken. And no matter how much you fill it, it's never going to be full. If you're here this morning... You don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you're watching this morning. You don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Consider the teacher's conclusions. He's given his life to the pursuit of pleasure because he concluded that a life apart from God has no other choice but to pursue the life of pleasure, to seek happiness in this world and this world only. And he's come to the conclusion that it all utterly is meaningless. What you accomplish, what you pursue, what you acquire for yourself, ultimately you cannot take it with you in the next life. Consider the teacher's conclusion that such is the end, the life of pleasure. And consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider that Christ the Savior of the world, the Son of God, came into the world to die for sinners. And that you can live forever with God. That you can receive forgiveness of sins. That you can be reconciled with God by placing your faith and trust upon Jesus. You may not be able to take anything with you in the next life but what you can take with you, that you can have now, is Christ. And you can take Christ with you into heaven. And that your life lived in Christ today will matter. If Christ is your greatest treasure and source of joy and satisfaction, if Christ is the Savior of your soul, if Christ is the Lord of your life, Christ promises to give you eternal life that you may be forever with Him and have permanent and eternal satisfaction. So, so how should man pursue pleasure in the world? First, with satisfaction. Second, and lastly, those things should be pursued with contentment. Contentment is an independence from the world that comes from a dependence upon God. Do you find yourself wanting that new toy 
even though you don't necessarily need it? Do you find yourself trying to look beyond what you can see to see if the, the grass is greener on the other side? Do you find yourself pursuing those things that God forbids? Do you find yourself coveting what's not yours? Do you find yourself envious of the accomplishments of others? Or if you answered yes to any of those questions, then you are struggling with discontentment. And discontentment is grounded in faithlessness. Now, as a Christian, you can certainly struggle with discontentment. And faithlessness, I don't mean by that that you are actually not a Christian. But what I mean is that discontentment is granted in a lack of faith in God. Because the ground of contentment is a trust or a faith that God is good, that he is the dispenser of all good gifts, and that God has given to you exactly what you have today for his own purposes and for your own good and not more or any less. My kids have recently learned about returning stuff at a store. And my kids have recently got two different toys. And Elena, my oldest, got envious of my younger's toy. And she didn't want her own toy anymore. And she and we said, well, honey, you have to be okay. You have to be content. You have to be happy with what you have. And she was like, well, can I just simply return it? and get that one and get something else? It's like, well, no, that's not supposed to be how it works. Mm -hmm. So, oh, right, I mean, in, in children, we see that discontentment, we see that envy, we see that covetousness, but we, as adults, even as Christians, we may not be all that different. We can certainly be covetous of other things, envious of others. but this is exactly what the world does when they get envious or covetous. Let me return this. Let me exchange this. Let me back out of this commitment. Let me exchange this house for another. The reason why this, the world is given to such an exchange, this perpetual exchange of returning over and over again because the world is constantly in the pursuit of satisfaction and it cannot find it. But the beginning of contentment is to acknowledge that God is the dispenser of all things, that what you have has been given to you by the Lord himself. And for reasons he has not revealed to you, he has decided to not to give you more or any less. And contentment, again, begins by trusting that God knows better than you and I do. Could you imagine if God was a discontent God? I mean, he would certainly easily be discontent with us because of our sins, because of our failures, because our continuing to pursue the things that God does not delight in. But God is a God of pleasure. He's a God who is satisfied in himself. He's a God who is content within himself. And he's a God of enduring faithfulness. So praise be to God that God is not discontent with us. So as Christians, we don't have to be afraid 
of pleasure as long as we pursue those things that God permits us to pursue and as long as they are pursued in the right manner. That is with a heart that rests satisfied and that is content with Christ. And this is a daily pursuit. right? There are competing voices in the world that are seeking our attention. And so it is a daily decision to continue to turn to Christ and see Him as our greatest source of joy and contentment and satisfaction. And so let us be in that pursuit. And only then, only when we pursue Christ as our greatest treasure, as our greatest satisfaction, can we then, in a right manner, enjoy things such as work and family and entertainment and good food in a way that honors the Lord and in a way that they ought to be pursued. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being so gracious and kind to us. We thank you for your great patience. Lord, as human beings and even as Christians, we struggle, Lord. We get tired of things. Sometimes we wish we could exchange things, that we could return things. God, but you have called us to a higher life. You have called us to be a people of satisfaction and contentment. And God, it is so easy to be discontent when we are not first satisfied in Christ. So Lord, help us to learn satisfaction in Christ. Help us to pursue the Lord Jesus as our greatest treasure. so that we can enjoy the things of this life in a right manner without making them into idols. Lord, so would you help us? Would you strengthen us by your Spirit? Help us to make it our ambition to pursue delight and pleasure and satisfaction and contentment in Christ above all things. Help us, Lord, to not be joyless Christians, but help us to be joy-filled Christians because of everything that we have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you and we worship you for everything that you have given to us. You have lavishly graced us through the gospel of Christ. And so we thank you And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.